welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to The Ramble. I have an incredible, incredible guest on my show today, somebody who I admire a great deal, somebody I've known for a long time as a, as a rival, as a friend, as a fan. There's so many different, uh, so many different ways in which I've, I've enjoyed this, this human being's life, and I think that there's so much that you're going to be able to take away from this conversation especially if you're into the sport of running, the sport of athletics, personal achievement in any capacity. Uh, Mr. Chris Winters has just an amazing resume of which I'm about to read. And let's get started on that. So Chris is a 2016 Olympian and current professional in sport administration working for Athletics Canada, the national sport organization for track and field, road running and cross country. Winter grew up in North Vancouver, BC, where at nine years old, he joined the Norwesters Track and Field Club coached by Frank Reynolds. He continued to train with the Norwesters throughout high school until graduation, where he received a scholarship to attend the University of Oregon. Chris competed for the Ducks on both their track and field and cross country teams. And in 2009, he won the Pac-10 steeplechase title and he made the NC2A finals twice in 2008 and 2009. It gets better than that. After graduation, Chris pursued a career as an elite athlete where he went on to represent Canada at multiple international championships in 2014 winter finished sixth in the steeplechase at the commonwealth games in glasgow and won the canadian steeple excuse me canadian cross-country title winter stood on the steeplechase podium at the canadian championships in 2012 bronze 13 silver and 14 bronze after missing the most of 2010 and 11 uh with injuries he set a personal best of eight minutes and 26 seconds and 55 seconds in the 3000 meter steeplechase in july 2015 to go under the Olympic entry standard for the 2016 Olympic Games, where he made his Olympic debut. In addition to his athletic pursuits, Chris graduated from the University of Oregon with a degree in business administration with a concentration on sports marketing. Since retiring from elite competition, Chris had started a career in sports administration where he currently serves in the role of director, domestic program, and safe sport with Athletics Canada. In his spare time, Chris enjoys exploring local trails with his wife, Rachel, also an incredibly fast runner, discovering the Pacific coast by boat and spending time at his family cabin. Chris, welcome to the Ramble. Hey, Joel. Great to have you. Or great to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. You can have me, man. Yeah. I, I was like, as I'm reading your resume, I'm like, there's no resume bio that I've ever read that I thought would be more like the life I thought I was going to have circa like 2005. But unlike you, I couldn't hack it. I, I don't know. Either that or I was just, uh, I don't know, not, not uh, more persistent, but maybe I'm just more stubborn where I just wouldn't let go and I bang my head on it a few more years. So I, I think there's a lot of that in, <laughs> a lot of that in sport where I think if you just kind of stick around long enough at some point uh you know you, you you might rise to the top there and 
I had no doubts, uh, Joel. I think you had the talent to do it. I'm not saying you, uh, yeah, you made the wrong decision. I think you've been successful in other ways, but uh, yeah, I certainly think you could have been successful and found for future success in the sport. You stuck with it a little longer, but it's it's hard. I I liken it to the uh, the pursuit of an artist because an artist is often you know whether you're a painter, filmmaker, you're an author. At some point, somebody says you got to get practical and there's no money in it and you're wasting your time. And so they tell you to go become a banker or dental hygienist or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really that that's the case in athletics, track and field specifically, whereas once that graduation you know, bell dings, so to speak, it's not so easy to justify staying with the sport, right? Yeah. And I feel like I had that. There was two times in the sport for me where I really kind of hit those fork in the roads where it was like, you know, that you're faced with a decision and one was leaving university and it was trying to decide what to, to do at that time. I just wrapped up a, a really successful internship at Nike at their headquarters in Beaverton. Great experience, great company involved in sports. So I definitely saw a path and a future that route, but I knew I had some unfulfilled you know, stuff and dreams in track and field. And so it was kind of faced with that decision, what I wanted to do. And as I often did, it was like, what's going to leave me with like the least number of regrets in my life. And as I knew that, you know, the work world and the career was always going to be there and I could come back to that in two, three, four, five years time. But for me, the sport part, like that was not something you can come back to when you're 40 or 45. So that was kind of my guiding light at that time. So I went down and kind of pursued that for (laughs) nine months or so. And then I ended up getting injured and I was injured for about two years. And here I am like, an elite runner, I'm getting paid like literally no money at all and living in a basement suite in Guelph, Ontario. And, you know, thinking that this is what, you know, an elite athlete lifestyle is all about. And I've been injured. I can't even compete. Mm-hmm. And I had that conversation with my dad where he was like, sat me down one day. We were just, we were just hanging out and he kind of wondered like, this is two years into being injured. He's like, what's the deal? What are, what are you going to do here? Like, are you just going to continue doing this? Or are you going to kind of say, you know, it's over and, and move on. And, I, again, I kind of was stuck there and I just felt like I had this deep desire or, or kind of I don't know, unfulfilled promise in the sport that I wanted to kind of pursue a bit further. And so I used that as kind of the motivation at that point. It was like, if I'm going to do this. Like I gotta, I gotta give it a hundred percent. There's no, like, I can't, uh, you know, mail it in here and half-ass it. So I think those are important kind of gut checks to have whenever you're doing it in life. Mm-hmm. And it's hard too, right? Cause you've at that moment in time, you know, just based on your resume for, again, those who are listening, like you've already competed at the highest level at the NCAA championships, which is a feat in of itself. You will we'll go back in time to all the things you accomplished even before that. So is it, is it the Olympic dream? Is that really the burning thing that says, no, this is what I have to do? Or is it, I have to run faster? Like, what is the, what is the, when you say, un, like, leave it on, can't leave anything on the table. And, and what is it exactly that was the, I have to go for this mark. Yeah, I think for sure, 100% was the Olympic Games. And I, I think there's lots of kids that grow up with that, that dream uh, for mine. that was super strong. And I think that that was like, probably came out of like the success as, as a young kid, a young high school athlete. Like that was really kind of everybody around town, you know, was like, you're going to go to the Olympics, you're going to go to the Olympics. And so like, whether it was pressure I put on myself or the pressure I felt by putting on others, but that was certainly something like, that I felt like maybe if I didn't achieve that in my life, maybe I wasn't, it was all for nothing. Right. Mm. So there was definitely a lot of internal and external pressure to, to meet that goal. And like, that's a big hairy goal to kind of put out there yeah. and have on you when you're 16, 17, and then 
it only gets worse because 1617, you actually have no idea what that means. It's really, you know, quite easy to be the best in the province, to be the best in Canada, but it's a whole different thing to go on and qualify for the Olympic games at the senior level. And mm-hmm. I say easy in air quotes, because it's obviously not easy to be either of those things, but uh, the Olympic games are even another step behind that. And so I, I think whether it's just being naive or whatever, like, the, like we all kind of say, you know, whoever's the fastest kid in your school, you can go to the Olympics, you know, in the, in the sprints mm-hmm. and at some point reality comes and gets you. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess it just, I continue with it long enough that maybe it actually came true. <laughs> yeah, man. Like that's, that's a real thing in everything. Like w- when I moved to New York to start uh, when, with my business and then all of a sudden you're just, you've gone from small town, British Columbia to New York. And similarly, when I got, you know, I went to a, a, a different school in the, in the United States, I went to High Point, North Carolina, a tiny school. M- my dream was Oregon, but that was not happening <laughs> like you did. And I remember competing at the great American cross country race. I think I got like 155th, right? My my freshman year. And you have a very rude awakening of one, is it a reality for me to achieve the goal? And two, if it is a reality, what is like the, from where I am today? Because I thought I was pretty freaking good. And now I realize I'm, I'm very middle of the pack when you're with the best. And that's not even like, that's middle of the pack in one race. There was 10 other races in the country at the same time of which I would have been 155th, right? So where, like, did you ever have that moment in, well, I guess in, in university? Actually, before you answer that question, let me preface, it, preface that with saying like, you'd already won, a, uh, uh, sorry, I think you got bronze at the world championships in the steeple at the world youth games with, that I was at in, in the 1500, which was a massive feat because that's against everybody in the world, your age group. And you were a child star, like you were a phenomenal runner from a very early age, uh, winning races by leaps and leaps and bounds. And so making those like mental adjustments to say, I know that I did that, but this is the reality today. And I got to get better from here. Oh, I mean, yeah, you, you, our stories are really similar that way in, in lots of ways. And, you know, child stars, you go down to the NCAA, you kind of carry and come in there. You're this, you were this big fish in the small pond. Both of us were in, in Canada. We go down to the States and expect to kind of just keep our winning ways going. And it was a huge rude awakening. I mean, I, I don't even want to go back and look at those results. Someone should at some point go look in 2000. What was that? 2004 cross country. I mean, I was probably 70th, 80th at our regional meet, even if, if I was that good. I mean, it might have been in the hundreds. And so it was like really, I don't know, disappointing. And yeah, it was really hard to kind of see how this was going to work out. And that was kind of the case for most of my university career, to be honest. I mean, I, I was really, you know, that was the, the true like small fish in a big pond scenario where, you know, guys on my team, even, you know, I mean, you look at what they've gone on to do and Galen Rupp being one of them as a multiple Olympic medalist, Matthew Sensuitz is one of the gold medalists. Andrew Weeding, um, <laughs> the, the names go on. There was just, there's, you know, all of them. And so what that meant, literally, I, I didn't make our cross country team at, for the national championships. That was the alternate two years in a row. So I, I just stood on the sidelines and watched. And like, that was really hard to go. Like, I'm going to go to the Olympic games after standing on the, at the sidelines of your, on your cross country team. I couldn't make the cross country team. And I, I heard, I heard that for many years after. Right. And uh, so that was really, really challenging. And it was kind of, there, that, I mean, we can go down this little rabbit hole here and uh, on why that happened. And some of it was kind of internal stuff where I just didn't believe in myself, but some of it was external. And I, 
had a coach uh, change within that first year of me being there. So the coach that initially recruited me, Martin Smith, ended up moving on and they brought in a new coach, Ben Lanana. And by all accounts, I was like so excited because this guy, you know, was, uh, you know, the, the best coach on the planet, really. I mean, he, the stuff he'd done at Stanford and, and coaching some of the, the best athletes there and the Nike farm team, which was one of the precursor uh, professional professional teams out there. Um, so I was so happy to have him land on the doorstep. The challenge is he didn't really give a crap about me because he didn't recruit me. He didn't want to have my scholarship on his, on his desk. And so oh, man. You know, right away, there was just this lack of, uh, I don't know, belief and confidence in me. And, you know, the first thing that if you're going to see an athlete suffer is if your coach doesn't believe in you. And so that was like the next four years really was, was that. And I, I kind of found my way a little bit, but struggled with, you know, disordered eating and, you know, body image stuff. And, uh, so finally had just enough success. Like in, in, when you talk about my bio, like, yeah, I made it to the NCAA championships in the steeplechase, but I was eighth and ninth and like, so it was good, but not great. Uh, but I had just enough success to go, okay. Like it, it made sense to continue on afterwards mm-hmm. and to try to continue to pursue that, that Olympic dream, but it was still a long ways away at that point. So not sure how we got down that rabbit hole, but no, it's, 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 it's the rabbit hole. It's, it's the most important thing because these are like, they're called systems because they are the systems in a way that they are the thing that's supposed to enable athletes through something to, you know, something else really. And it's so funny. I I didn't even know that we had this, the same thing. So I, when I went down to high point, actually it really began after the world championships and I, I got dusted. I was sick, but I was standing on the line and I was looking at all these different Kenyans and Ethiopians and even other runners from Europe. And I was like, I'm fat. Mm-hmm. I literally, I went from 123 pounds, grade 12 peak performance to after my freshman year of college, I was, uh, I was 115 pounds right. and sick. Yeah. Sick. So then there's me, I'm the 165 pound looking at you, the 115 pound guy going, I got to look like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the pressure that was on me. So, I mean, you're dealing with it and that's, you know, I'm sorry that you went through that. And, but I was faced that too. And so my coach even walked up to me one day and was just like, you need to lose weight. Mm-hmm. There was no support. It wasn't like, Hey, we're going to put you in touch with a dietitian or nutritionist. It's going to guide you through this. And, you know, we're not looking for you to lose tons of weight. We're going to look what, what's perfect for your body, whatever, you know, give me, give me some healthy advice. No, it's just lose weight. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about losing weight. All like, I was like, okay, calories in calories out. So I'm just going to like take a guess here that whatever tall you Google someone on the internet. Okay. I need to, you know, eat 2,500 calories a day. So, Oh, I'm going to have 2000 then. Right. And just restrict, restrict, restrict. And so I went from the 165 pounds down to 148. I'm sitting on the scale, standing on the scale and I look at the pictures now and it's kind of gross. And I'm like, I can't believe I did that to my body. And how low did you get to Chris? 148. Wow. Uh, so I, I shaved seven ish. You shaved almost yeah, 20. 15 to 20. So no, the really, and the interesting thing and what I like to tell people is, you know, I ended up getting injured and, and mm-hmm. you know, mostly injured. I never really dealt with sickness, but I got injured afterwards and whether or not you could relate it to the, you know, the disordered eating or not, it's hard to say, but got to imagine they play some role with each other had two years off in that time it was really built on like strength training and getting stronger, strong core, everything like that. And so just naturally by doing all that and not running as much, I went up to 165 pounds and I never could lose it. And I didn't want to, I changed my mind. I, I 
I'd grown up, I'd matured as an individual. I was working with a better coach in some regards, uh, another story for later and you know, a better nutritionist and dietitian. And so when I went to the Olympic games and I ran my PB, it was 165 pounds. And mm-hmm. so like, that's, that was the best thing for me. And I don't know if you'd remember the quote, but I remember like, and I don't have the quote memorized perfectly, but Craig Mocham, he's a big runner, right? Yeah. He was a similar build to, to myself, you know, that six foot tall, 150 to 170 pounds, that, that sort of range. And he, he, he had the same situation that both you and I did, where he looked at the Kenyan standing beside him on the start line. And he goes, I got to look like that. And he tried to that for a while. And he realized with his coach, Nick Bado that no, he couldn't do that. And he was, he was going to lose at that game because no matter what he did, he was never going to look like the Kenyans. So he had to work with what he had and what he had was a big, strong frame. So he was going to use that to his advantage and make him as strong as possible and use that and make that his strength. And the guy ran under 13 minutes in the 5k. So yeah. the, what was it? The big Mazunga? Mazunga? Yeah, big Mazunga. Mazunga? Yeah. Yeah. He was, a, he was incredible. And, and, and that's, and that's such a hard shift to make. You have to have, like you said, a good coach, possibly a good sports psychologist and it's, I, I, I guess just as, as an aside and out of curiosity, like a guy like Chris Zielinski, mm-hmm. you know, as we're geeking out here, yeah. who was, he would have been a 165 runner, right? At yeah. least. And, mm-hmm. but he never talked about, he, did he, did he ever, I don't think he ever went through aggressive weight loss stuff. He never talked about it, did he? Or it, it didn't come public and, and yeah. if it has, I haven't seen it, but uh yeah, it's actually a really interesting. And, and so Trent Stellingworth, who's one of Canada's like foremost uh, human physiologists around performance, he shows a great graph when he's talking about body image and body weight. And he's got the graph of the, the top uh, or every single male that's gone under 27 minutes in the 10,000 meters, which is an incredible feat. And you can see all the little dots, all the dots are right around that 120 pounds and 5'8 or so. And then there's boom, way over here, Chris Zielinski, <laughs> under 27 minutes. And he's, you know, 165, 61, 62. And all he was saying is like, it, you know, they both got to the same place. Right. And so you don't need to look like that to be able to compete at that level. And, you know, it does take believing in that. It takes having a really good coach, takes good, good people in your corner that, you know, believe in you and that instill that confidence in you and, and make the most of that. But you, your approach was really interesting at where you brought up like, okay, I'm not going to say that weight loss is a bad thing. I'm going to say what is, or I'm going to ask the question, well, what is the right level with the right diet for me? Mm-hmm. And you maybe ended up back at, you know, the same number. And some people, I think it's Matt Sensowitz Senso, always talks about, you know, one of the guys always talks about like, like he usually likes to race around one four, or maybe he's Nick Willis. I don't know. One of these guys, there is a bit of a metric where, he just comes down a hair mm-hmm. and, but if he's doing it intelligently, like mm-hmm. he's cutting out junk food, like, or yeah. something like that. And, and, you know, you can find an optimum, an optimum performance weight that may not be the weight that you're training at and competing at. And, and that's an ex- exploration worth having, but it's not often the case in the, in the university system where, you know, we just, we're just two men who talked about struggles with, you know, maybe anorexia, body dysmorphia in that way and, and eating disorder, how many female athletes have been, had that comment made and then just totally fucking abandoned, you know, it's, and then you, you throw in, you know, maybe they're abroad in school, like you were, like I was like, you're not at home. You don't have your home base. You don't have your Mm -hmm. girlfriends, your boyfriends or whatever. And like all of a sudden, it gets, you go real dark inside. 
At least yeah. I did. I don't, I mean, did you? Well, I, I actually think, and you know, there's a lot of issues in sport and a lot of issues in society and sport is a microcosm of society. And I, I think that there's, there's a lot of big issues that we see out there and they're the ones that make the headlines and they're the sexual abuse cases and they're horrible. Right. But I think what we've been talking about here and what you just kind of referenced here is like, that's like the iceberg that's like underneath the water is this like eating disorder, disorder, eating stuff. And it, it's certainly getting better. I think as coaches get a little bit more knowledgeable on the fact that just lighter isn't better. Uh, but it's still it's still pervasive through our sport and, and in sports in general. And the fact is, there is some truth to it. But the reality is the same number is not right for everyone. So whatever right was you was definitely not right for me because we just have different bodies. Right. So there's no place on the planet that I should weigh 120 pounds. But, you know, for me, optimal was around that, you know, 165. And I didn't have to work hard at it. And especially over time, it just kind of became a natural like set point. But the other thing is, and, and this, again, comes with good good training and it's really we're talking about the absolute elite athletes in the sport and this should not be you know told, told to any young athletes any high school athletes even university athletes who are just there's still so much other areas they can work on in the sport to improve and develop but when you're finally you're talking about that you're up in that that top 0.1 where you're talking about trying to qualify for olympic games and stuff that like you start to play with some of these things just just a little bit but it's got to be done intelligently and it's got to be done for very very short periods of the year and again, Trump, Trent Stellingworth, one thing that he often did in his talks, he'd show pictures of uh, Marion Jamal, who was an Ethiopian, I think she was Ethiopian born runner. And she would, uh, he'd show the pictures of her winning medals at the, at the Olympic Games in the summertime. And then pictures of her in November, December during the off season. You could barely, you know, recognize the person, totally different individuals, because the person would put on, uh, Marion would put on somewhere, and as Trent would always say, somewhere around seven or 8% of their body weight, you'd have to put back on. And that's actually more your normal. And then you drop down to that racing weight, yeah. whatever, that lighter weight, but for a very, very short period of time, because it's not, it's not something you can do long-term and you're going to do damage if, if you don't. But again, I'll reemphasize, that's not something a high school kid should be doing. A university athlete needs to be doing. It's really just for the top end of the sport. Yeah. I think Kinesa Bikaley, if I'm saying his name right, who, you know, he's, I think he's still the world record holder at 5k, 10k, considered the greatest distance runner of all time. He would, he would change. You know, even, even in the, in the heaviest training cycles of his base, you know, his base training in the winter, he would still be heavier than lower mileage peak race weight, but it was, it was marginal. The difference was marginal. And again, you're talking about the, the, the greatest athlete possibly to ever run, you know, yeah. a distance race. Yeah. And I wanted to go back before we, we go forward a little bit because, and you, and you mentioned this high school, uh, you know, a little bit about that. And, and it's really interesting because we live in a place, you know, you compete down in the States. There's a lot of kids doing cross country and track and there's just a lot of kids, but in British Columbia, it's like a dog fight to get a kid out of soccer, to get a kid out of gymnastics or whatever it is to run track and field three or four days a week. Yet you at 13 or 14 were, were quite literally one of the best runners in the province. No age. Group, you know, when you won the cross country BC cross country championships when you were, I think, grade nine. Mm -hmm. How did you? I guess, two there's two points to my there's two parts to my question. How did you choose to come into the sport and sort of stay in the sport when there's all these other distractions? And second, how did you handle the weight of just such early expectation on? on your success and trajectory, you know, based on winning a big race really, really young. And then knowing that the target was always on your back thereafter. Yeah. I mean, I, I found sport as the way most do, and that's just through uh, elementary school track and field. So 
just came out for, you know, grade four track, I think it was. And, you know, you run the 100 and 200 around some gravel track. And as the distances got longer, I think like the longest race we might've been allowed to run at that time was maybe 800 meters. And, you know, that was where I was a bit more successful. And I don't know how my parents asked around, there's a local track club the Nor'westers, as you referenced earlier. And so I went and joined, joined that group. And I mean, I look back now, I mean, what we were doing there wasn't training. It was just like physical activity. We would play ultimate and frisbee, you know, frisbee, basketball, whatever, just as our, you know, training for that day. And yeah, maybe we'd sprinkle in a couple of, uh, you know, drills and maybe a couple of little repetitions of things, but I was still throwing the javelin shot, put hammer, doing the, the long jump and trying the pole vault <laughs> and things like that. So I, I failed miserably at all those things. I had that little, I'd be able to go back to my like 1500, 800 at the end of the day and be successful at it. Um, but I just had like, it was a really good environment and my coach was great. The the club was great. And so that just kind of kept me in the sport. And I just, you know, obviously success keeps you around. Right. And I was right away, just naturally good at the sport. And it makes no sense. No, no, no diss on my parents, but they were not, you know, endurance superstars. They never ran in their life. I've never run in their life. Well, my mom gets out for her, her walk jogs and stuff like that to stay healthy, but it's not, it's not something that our family you know, came to. And I, so I found it somehow it's, it's really interesting that way and, you know, continued with it. And like you said, you, I, I did have that really early success. So there was this world championships for, for youth athletes. So under 18 and you and I were on that team together and yeah, it came together on that weekend. I think again, I was like super naive where I was going in there and I'd won every other race I'd ever ran. And so I just like kind of assumed that it would just be no different. And that was probably a great mindset. And if you could just kind of bottle that for the rest of life, that would have been good too because uh, then you start putting people on pedestals and you start to kind of limit what you, what you think and what you're able to do. But on that weekend or that week, I, I, uh, yeah, was, was, uh, super successful and ended up being able to win a medal there. And that certainly kind of changed my trajectory in terms of when it came to talking to different schools and where I was going to go to university and things like that and opened up a lot of doors that way. But yeah, to your point, it also added a lot of, a lot of pressure. It wasn't, that bad though i think like being around just good people i think my coach like he was just a really down-to-earth kind of guy um he just he didn't really i mean sure he made a big deal of it in terms of like a celebration and fun but there was no like this did it didn't change anything at the end of the day i went back to practice with my friends and family and all that stuff and it was the same as it was before and so i think that that was important i think just the way i was brought up my family i think that that was just um yeah, nothing changed that way. So uh, there was a lot of expectations, but it was the next year we went to university and I found myself finishing hundredth place in a cross country race. So you, you get brought back down to earth pretty quickly. Yeah. You always had, you always had this like really nice sense of, I, I found levity and a sense of humor. I, I found you had ability to bullshit and kind of be let loose maybe more than I did. You know, when we got to illegal drinking age, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I thought that, I thought that that maybe it had been a, a secret weapon that, that you had, or, or maybe you focused hard on it where I, I was, I think I felt like I was more tightly wound than you and you could cut loose. And I don't, I'm sure you're still friendly with Mike Woods, who is another guy our age, who mm-hmm. very successful, now successful cyclist. He was also able to cut loose. Was that, is that fair? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, and I, I look back at that time and I, you know, I wonder, you know, were, was I too much? So were you too much? So, I mean, I don't know what's right or wrong. I mean, at the end of the day for me, it was like having fun and loving the sport. I think that was for me, what kept me around a really long time was making friends and 
enjoying, yeah, traveling the world and, and meeting people. And I'd give up that for nothing. And even when we got to like, when I was able to go and compete at some of these global championships and I'd it'd probably say it as a bit of a fault from like that high performance mindset. Like I was like really excited to meet people and really excited. I, I, I got I was fortunate to go and race at world championships in, in Moscow. I wasn't going to miss seeing red square and, you know, going to see, and, you know, all the sites that, that Moscow has to, to offer. And I wasn't going to just lock myself in my hotel room focused on my race, which maybe is embarrassing to say, but I'm like, you only go around this, you know, this life once and I wasn't going to miss anything. So, but it also kept me in the sport longer. I really enjoyed what I did. And I, I look at some other athletes that maybe were more tightly wound and it was, it wasn't as much fun. And you're only going to be so successful at things if you're enjoying what you're doing. Um, so I didn't have a specific plan. It just kind of came naturally. That's just how I am and who I am as a person. That's good. I, I would agree. I think the part of my very quick demise was uh, a culmination of that, that eating disorder led, leading to sickness and injury and just never really having fun. But then I look back and I remember, I just remember, I was like, all of a sudden it's like, shit, that was pretty fun. Like there was, I remember loving running through the trails and, in Abbotsford and wherever else, or, you know, sometimes if you and I would have a friendly, like a race and, but my head, my head was in the right place. I, I, and I just loved the race of it, not, you know, who won the race and then traveling the world championships and stuff like that. And, and I was like, why didn't I have that when I was in it? <laughs> you know, like, cause it's a gift. It's a gift to be good at it. Yeah. And it's a gift for, because you're good at it, where it can take you. And yeah, it's, a, like, it's a tough thing. I mean, people always say it's like, enjoy the moment, enjoy the moment. Right. And it's like, like, yeah, like you're enjoying the moment at the time and you're doing the best with what you can. Um, it's hard to like enjoy it anymore. So I think it's just, I don't know, it, it's, it's who you are. And, it, and I mean, it does suck to look back and go, Oh, like, I feel like you missed something, but I don't know. I think that maybe it's just a part of human nature, but yeah, I can certainly think of lots of fun we had during the time. And I mean, <laughs> you, you make, you make the best of it with, uh, you know, with what you're doing at that time. When you got to Guelph, which I believe was one of the, the funded training teams in the country at the time. Yeah. Like our coach at the time, Dave Scott Thomas was um, you know, one of like the national team coaches. And I believe, I mean, sometimes these things were not necessarily fully transparent. So I believe there was some funding through to uh, the Guelph program as like one of these athletes Canada center for excellence. And so they did receive some funding that would go into things like treatment centers and training camps and that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of that and there still isn't. I mean, I think our, the sport of athletics is still uh, pretty small scale when it comes to, you know, professional teams and stadiums and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's still pretty low, low key amateur. Uh, but that was one of the options really basically when I left university was kind of looking around where I wanted to go and I wanted to end up back in Canada. I just been away for five years at that time. And so getting back to Canada was important and there was a very, very few basically, one opportunity to, to do that. And that was that in Guelph. It was Guelph and Victoria were like the only two, right? Yeah. Guelph was yeah, with uh, Wynn Gamatrowski and I never really got to know Wynn and didn't uh, really have an in that way. And he was more of like an eight, 1500 meter coach. And I was yeah. more on the steeplechase. And so the, the athletes that were training with Dave and Guelph at that time were uh, Alex Janay, Rob Watson, and a couple others that were focused on that steeplechase. So it was kind of a natural fit that I yeah. would drift that direction. If I'm remembering it correct, I had, I was going to go, live in Victoria, right. And train with Wim right before, uh, I decided to quit. Mm -hmm. That was sort of like, it was like all or nothing. And then I decided to hitchhike across Canada and disappear yeah. from around the world. But 
Well, okay. I'm going to, I want to bring us to the, to the training and, and the life of Guelph, but just before that, you know, what we're seeing today more maybe than ever, and that could just be because of dollars and opportunity is uh, athletes going pro sooner or, or going into a system that isn't the collegiate system here, there, you know, here, here being Canada, which is not so great. And in States, which has a lot of competitive and uh, quality training and, and competitive opportunities where now that you've been through this and, and, you know, where you stand, where do you see, do you see this as something that a trend that should continue? Like as in the NC2A system, as good as it is, isn't necessarily the, the best nurturing ground for, for athletes in, in this particular sport. Yeah. I think we've seen a good trend uh, where we've seen the kind of the uh, development of the youth sports programs and the universities and colleges here we have in Canada. Uh, we've got, you know, I would say a really high level of coaching at a number of those institutions. Most of them have at least decent um, facilities. I look back to when you and I were graduating high school in like university of British Columbia, one of the premier institutions in Canada didn't have a track and field facility. didn't have a track. So it's kind of hard for you and I to <laughs> consider that as a viable option the most coaching. gorgeous campus in like yeah. Canada that doesn't have a, a an oval. Have a track, some, right? you know. So it does now, right? And and yeah. you know it's changed, right? They, they they're a much more successful you know middle distance program than they ever were before that. And success breeds success. And I, I do look and you know again we maybe we'll get to it, but like the Dave Scott Thomas program at the University of Guelph really upped the game in terms of its intensity, its seriousness, the quality of athletes that it attracted. I mean having. Uh, a partnership with a post-collegiate group that included, you know, Olympians and uh, that sort of thing certainly helped its cachet and, you know, okay, you're going to be a high school athlete. Who am I going to train with? Oh, Reed Coolsat and Taylor Milne and Alex Janay. Like, why wouldn't, why would, you don't need to go anywhere else, right? You don't need to go down to the States. Yeah. Um, so we, what we see is we kind of have like a really good options. I think, I mean, the, the United States still serves a purpose for, you know, our top athletes, like our really, really top. I mean, you get look at a guy like Justin Knight, it only made sense for him to go down in the United States and he was competitive right away and, you know, has continued to see success. But for guys like even you and I, like we went down there and we we're finishing a hundredth place in cross country. That wasn't very motivating. Mm -hmm. um, so what I found, at least when I moved back to Canada afterwards, right away, I went back to being that big fish in a big pond with a supportive coach and a supportive system. And I could see, I could see the front of the race. And that was really important for me to feel engaged and competitive was to see the front of the race literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I think that that, that was a, a huge part of my development and kind of falling back in love with the sport and feeling like I could be successful there. There's something to be said about that. That is, that is worth, you know, worth a, a brief discussion because the way I see it is that, is that I agree you, you're going to have, you know, the odd guy, like the guy who just, um, I don't remember his name, but he's from Texas and he just won the 3000 and 5,000 indoors and he was a walk-on the university of Texas. Right. So there's, there's the sweetheart stories. Like the guy, like we had faster PBs than him in those races as high school athletes. And, you know, he just, he, some guys can, and gals can find their way from the bottom to the top. And it's a beautiful story, but the other path is like that more guarded path where you're, you're focusing on wins and building confidence through wins, not in a diluted sense, we can all look at race results and see times. You're not like, you cannot be diluted in this sport as to where your time and your, your daily training stands versus the sport at large. But 
you look at a guy like Galen Rupp to an extent, and he took a lot of flack. You know, he's the best, one was one of the very best in the world, but he was very specific about his races. He didn't often set himself up for failure if he could avoid it, right? You know, unless it's a championship and you don't have a choice. And I think that, I think that that would be, I think a, a, an athlete can, if they're, if they're choosing their races where, like you said, you can see the front, there's a, there's a, maybe a more seamless building path up to the Olympics versus like bottom to the top. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Well, confidence and momentum, I mean, the two go hand in hand. Right. And so, you know, you need to, I remember having this conversation once with Alex out on a long run, like my training partner. And we were like, which comes first, right? Like how, how do you, how do you get confidence, right? Where does it come from? And so, you know, certainly I think that, that what you struck on is a really important thing. And I mean, it all depends on, who you are and what your context is and what success is right for Galen success was Olympic medals for someone else. It might be, you know, uh, an age class or an age group win or, or whatever it might be, but, you know, being able to see your goals, I mean, whatever it is in life is really, really important if you actually think you're going to achieve them. So yeah, I just agree with what you're saying there. I came cause I came back and I did something similar. I came, I went, you know, trained back the Alan Webb thing and went back to my high school coach and before I got injured again, there's, I guess my story runs out of uh, bump. There's bumps in the road on it in terms of the timeline, but there was a period where I made a comeback and, you know, I probably would have won Canadian juniors. You weren't going to be racing. So it was more of a sure thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was dropping the best times I ever had and I was building confidence. Right. Mm-hmm. And I attended, like I went down to the States for a little meet in Oregon. And I don't know if you raced that meet or not, but I ended up getting like, 25th in like a very competitive race. Right. And I was like, okay, like I prefer that to 125th, <laughs> you know, and then you go back and you're like, I can get 15th the next time and I can get 10th the next yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and so it, you know, it worked. And I, I think this is just me just dreaming with you. Like I actually wish I had done what those New Zealand twins had done and uh, <laughs> gone off to the smaller, a smaller tr- training camp somewhere in Africa and not, you know, not Elliot Kipchoge's training camp, but one where you, you know, you're, you're competitive to an extent and, and you're just, I don't know. Yeah. Like I mean, those guys, they, they, they did something that was super brave, right. At that time, like nobody's lots of people have, I guess, followed in their footsteps, but they were teenage kids from New Zealand that hopped on a plane. They'd never been to Africa before didn't know anybody hopped on a plane, landed in, uh, 10, two little blonde haired twins. At least they had each other. They didn't have mm. very much money and they just threw themselves at this. Right. And they, they had a bit of talent, but they just, they grinded, they grinded and they grinded. And ultimately, I mean, it led, they both ended up being incredibly successful. I'm pretty sure yeah. it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Zane or his brother, Jake, that ended up winning a Commonwealth games medal in the 5,000 meters. You know, I mean, they, they're incredibly successful with that. That took a lot of guts. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't think most, you know, kids from Vancouver, Abbotsford are, are willing to make that sort of sacrifice, right? But they, I think that the part, their last name was Jake and Robinson, Robinson, Rob, yeah, Robinson yeah. right? They, and they have a great story. If you, you know, if someone wants to look it up, just they, the thing that I, fo- I thought that they had was they had time. They weren't immediately thrown into a, a very competitive su- racing cycle. They had time to kind of nurture that base and, and get their wins in a different way, I guess, that I thought was appealing. <laughs> I think they were like, they were like comfortable 
with getting beat up though. Like, I think they were really clear on what their goals were and how good they wanted to be. And like, no one was going to like detract them from that, but they were okay to just kind of take their beatings, like in all sense, like psychological, physical, you name Mm. it. I mean, I've seen pictures of the place that like basically the, the carpet they were sleeping on, you know, for the first little while. And they, you know, I mean, the stories get better over time, but like no (laughs) running water, no electricity, that sort of thing. Right. Like they were hand of mouth when it came to food. And some of that's a joke, but I think some of it was pretty, pretty legitimate. And I mean, I, again, one of them, I think ended up getting some sort of stomach intestinal, you know, issue and like basically on death's door and, you know, all these types of types of things. And like, if there's someone hasn't made a story, like a, a movie about it yet, they should. And, uh, but they, they were willing to take those licks because they were really clear in their mind what they wanted to, what they wanted to be and how they wanted to get there. And they felt that they were in the right place to do that. Mm-hmm. And again, after enough years, it worked out for them. It was kind of like the Rocky like you look at like the Rocky where, where he's training like a badass, roughing it, poor, and then makes it and then has to go back to the roughing it. It happens in the Creed movies. He's got to go to that like yeah. desert boxing club. There's something to be said about finding the rawness in what we did. And maybe that's the place where we jump back to Guelph. Like what you've now got two years there until the games. Is that is the timeline? Yeah. So I moved there, uh, graduated in 2009 from university, uh, went and sowed my wild oats in uh, Europe for a few months after trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And, uh, like, you know, I wasn't committed. I wasn't going to continue with the sport. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I did that. And like pretty quickly, I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not done with this. I want to get back into, to, you know, keep going with the sport. So I moved to Guelph in the September of 2009 had a great first six months of training. I came into the track season in 2010, had a huge PB. Like I, in all my years at university, my PB was 842 in the steeplechase, which was good, but not great. My very first race in Guelph, I ran 839. And so that was first race of the season. I was like, it's working. This is great. And that was my last race for two years. I ended up getting injured the week later. And it was one of those like soft tissue injuries that just kind of lingered for a yeah. long time. And so I spent way too much time on an elliptical machine, far too much money on physio and massage and all that sort of thing. And really end of the day, I had to strip it all back down to kind of the absolute basics. And it really was, you know, like kind of fundamental core strength that seemed to be the issue and uh, just kind of worked at kind of building myself up back from, from that. And uh, that was really hard. We kind of talked on that a little bit earlier. And so it wasn't until uh, I, I kind of had one little flash of tr- racing in 2011, but it came back again, the injury and then so 2012, the Olympic year where it finally, I was healthy and had this great season. I started with a PB of 839. I think one of my first races, I was at 836, got down to 832, uh, right before the Olympic trials. And I had like the, the B standard and there was a really complex system to qualify. And I can't even remember it all now, but I had one of the, the, the B standard and I needed the A as well. And I needed to be top three at nationals. So I had to be finished third at nationals, but I didn't have the A standard. So I didn't go to the Olympics, but I was like, very close in my mind it was like right there and I was planning on retiring after 2012 I was like that's it I put in my time I'm gonna move on but I was so close I was like I finished the nationals like no way I'm still in uh I got I gotta go for this so I went off to Europe that summer I think that was one of my first times if no it was my first time to go and race in Europe that summer ended up getting down to 828 so a massive year massive success by all accounts and so I was just like super hungry for more and then the next few years kind of spoke for themselves and there was a lot more success that followed but that's that's a that's no small ask of yourself because that's four years difference. 
between <laughs> one and the other. It's not like, okay, next year I'm going to qualify for the Olympics. It's no, I got to do this for four more years. Yeah. Was it, I mean, what, like, how did you think about those four years? Did you think about it as almost like, I don't really give too many shits about what happens in between. I only care about where I am today at the beginning of this journey and where I am for Rio Olympics. Was that like, yeah, that's a, it's an that interesting one, right? Like, cause yeah, you, you can't live in, I mean, as much as ever, yeah, we, we throw out these four year terms, like they're nothing, right? Oh, the next Olympics, like that's a really long time. Long so time. <laughs> in 2012, you're not thinking about 2016. You're, you're committing yourself to it. You're going, okay, like that's, that's where the big goal is. But you're certainly like you're focused on the next race and the next year and the next, you know, next training cycle and that sort of thing. So the next year was a 20, it was 2013. There was a world championship. So that was the, that was the main goal and main focus. 2016 was, you know, down the road. I, I would get to that at some point, but yeah, we changed everything. Actually, we, me and my, uh, we weren't married at the time, but me and my girlfriend at the time, Rachel, we packed up our car and we moved back to, to, uh, Vancouver. And so it was like, things were working out really, really well in Guelph, but then boom, we blew everything up, got in our car, drove across. And like, I came back to home, which was great, but my coach and my training group was still in Guelph. And so here I was in, in the city in Vancouver training alone, really. I mean, I was able to jump in with some training with some other athletes and I was able to go and some join some, my team for some training camps at altitude or in Europe from time to time. But it was a, it was a big change again. And it was like, obviously concerning because you knew it was what was working. And then you kind of threw that all away and were like, hoping that you'd still see the same success again. Um, ultimately it did work. And I think there were some benefits to that as well, but uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a big change. And we, we wanted to do that because uh, Rachel wanted to get on with her life. She wanted to start a master's degree program. We wanted to get back with family. I mean, I've been at that point, I've been living away from home for uh, yeah. Like, I mean, it have been almost eight years at that time. So it was just time to get back and be near family and that sort of thing. So we kind of put the puzzles pieces together and feels like you never complete the puzzle. You get enough pieces in that makes you happy. And, and that was good. And how just geek out with me for a second. And for anybody else who might care when you're like, when you're in the, the depth of your training blocks leading up to Rio, the Rio games, you know, what did that look like? And, and what was maybe a week that was just so good that you were like, yeah, I'm going to make it. <laughs> well, I, w- I will say a couple a little side to that. Like it, you could not get two things farther from the, like the Olympic games, the prestige, the marketing, the media, right? Like it's just, it's huge. Right. And then there's what my day-to-day reality was, which was like not sexy in the slightest. Like I reflect back on going up to the UBC track here, which is, you know, two miles from my house. And I live in Vancouver. It rains like 90% of the time. And I'm out there at the track and like, I was happy if there was a seagull at the track to like give me some like moral support. Like there was a lot of days that it was just me on the track by myself, super miserable, super unmotivating, um, like soul sucking. Right. I mean, and, and I did try to like align it. So like I knew when the university group was going to be there just to have like other bodies around and just like, I knew that they'd be like looking at me and like it kept me somewhat accountable or I'd loop in with like Chris Johnson and like some of his, like he's an, another coach and just, try to keep some other people around just so there was a coach standing around just to keep me honest, but it wasn't, wasn't sexy by any means. Um, but those, those workouts, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the big ones stick out, right. The big, like stupid workouts that you did. And like, I mean, again, I didn't write my own workouts and my coach would, and it wasn't necessarily here. And I, I'm only going to tell you this because it was like the stupidest workout I did in my career, but it was like something that I could wear as like a scar or a badge. I'm not sure yeah. which one. 
Um, but we were, we were in Guelph and so I'd go back from time to time, maybe two or three times a year, I'd go there for a week or so and, and get in a training program or, tra- or a training block. And uh, so we show up to practice. So Taylor Milne was with me as well. He's a, an Olympian in the 1500. You went to school with him at High Point. And uh, yeah. yeah, man, I got to say just that moment, I think I, I think I was checking the results, but then when you posted the photo and, and, and there's you and Taylor and I'm like, that's the most magical thing I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> this is the guy I went to school with for a year who I really admired and had had some trouble his freshman or no, he wasn't a freshman, but he, that's, you know, he had some dark days and to see him, he wasn't running when I was there. He was uh, yeah. party. Really, he was party, and uh, and then I think the year after I left, he turned it all around and was a sub four miler, and yeah, and then next thing you know, I lose him for a couple of years because I try and follow you all, all you guys, and yeah, you and him crossing the line, going to Rio, hugging. I'm like, man, like it's, yeah, yeah. Anyway, tell me your monster workout, <laughs> and like I I don't want anyone at home writing this one down to go and try to emulate because it doesn't make any sense to do it, but. We, uh, yeah, we showed up to practice one day. We kind of knew it was going to be a big session, but, and it was early in the season. It wasn't like, I mean, it would have been probably right around now. I'd say like, it's probably, well, maybe into April kind of thing. Still, still early enough. And, uh, and we show up to the workout and Dave, the coach, he's like, you're going to do 30 times 400. <laughs> and like literally Taylor, who's, he doesn't hide anything. He just, I think he swore at him and told him, you know, he could go to hell <laughs> and, uh, and wasn't, wasn't going to do the workout. Right. Just said like, forget that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And there was a lot of like, you know, disbelief murmuring that we actually weren't going to do that. So we headed off and did our warm up and came back to the track. And I think Dave and, and Taylor again, had, had a bit of, you know, some words with each other. Um, there was super disagreement that this was the dumbest workout ever, but I was just one of those that just was like, I'm like a golden retriever. That's what my wife would say. I just kind of do what I'm told. And just kind of like, you know, I'm a pleaser. Right. So I just want to like make coach happy. And so I just towed the line and, uh, I'd have to pull it up to actually look at how we broke it down, but I'm pretty sure it was like six sets of five and with like a, a minute rest. And there was a little variation. It might've started with 75 seconds rest and went down to 60, down to 45 and then back to 60. That's how I remember it. Mm. It gets a little bit bleary eyed, but you know, we started at 64s, you know, the first set and just kind of rolling through 64s, getting down to 63s, 62s. And by the time we get to 20, there's nobody left. There's just me. Kyle Borzma, Taylor, I think Taylor quit at 20 because he just had none of it and just kept on going. And then finally for the last set, the last five, Borzma came back after taking a set, like a full set rest and joined me in the last set. And we were under 60 for the whole last set. And like that oh, was, Oh, bring like it home. Like a monster workout. I felt amazing. It felt like probably one of my best, like athletic, uh, I don't know, endeavors I've ever done on that day, but I was destroyed for two weeks. Right. Like I, right. there was, try to get out and do another run the next day and try to get back. I mean, luckily I didn't actually really get hurt or, or injured or sick or anything like that. But I know at the time, like, again, we were like, why did coach do that? But like that, I still tell that story today as I just did. And the whole purpose was just to like prove that you could do it. Right. Like you're, you, you want to know how deep you can go and how hard you can, you know, push yourself. And that was one of those days where it's like, no matter what I did from there, nothing would be as hard as that workout on that day. And that was the point of it. And I think it served its purpose, at least for me. I'm not sure. I think it broke a few other people, but <laughs> no, those, those are, dude, that's where the sport is, is at its rawest, most beautiful. It's like some people get trapped in doing that so frequently and they become training heroes and they can never show up to the race. Right. 
because they just they burnt themselves out, beating the shit out of themselves, practice in, practice out. Maybe that was Taylor's logic. But when you go deep into a workout, deep, like as long, like what you're talking, you enter David Goggins level of like, I am not a human being right now. I am something else. And it feels incredible. That's a good one. Like, man, that'll, that'll, that'll get, especially those last five all under, all under 60. 67. That was just like the perfect workout for me. I, I was one of those that could go long. I wasn't the fastest guy, right? Like if we wanted to go and do a speed workout, Taylor and Alex were going to mop me up. Um, if we were going to go do like a long fire, like a re- cool, cool, sad, and Eric Gillis were going to smash me there. But I kind of had this like perfect little window. And that's why I think I was a good 3K athlete. It was just like I had like enough like endurance and enough speed where it's just kind of like the magical spot. And then you throw a little bit of rest in there. So that was just my, that was my sweet spot. So I was, I was licking my chops at that workout, but. I still think it's the greatest distance. I mean, you yeah. threw you threw a steeplechase in there, but I still think it's the best dis- distance race. I agree. Track. I agree. Yeah. Long enough to keep your attention and uh, yeah. kind of build suspense and uh, you know intrigue, but short enough to keep you you know it's over in seven minutes or seven and a half minutes. That the mile always feels too quick when you look, and it's like it's just a clusterfuck for like two laps, and then. There's posturing on the third lap, unless it's a record attempt, right? Where it just strings out right away. You're like, I'm just watching a 400 at the end of the day, like yeah. watching like a last lap. Yeah. yeah. What, what else? Just, just because I'm sure people would find it fascinating, like in a typical week, were you getting up to 80 miles, 70, 90 miles? Um, yeah, that's the that? thing with track runners, right? Like we always like to quote our largest mileage week and then say that that's our average, which was not true at all. Right. So like, did I break a hundred miles? Maybe once, uh, but like the bread and butter was that 75 to 85, probably right in there. That was a sweet spot where you knew you could get a lot of good quality work in, uh, but you could do it, you know, weeks on end. And it was never about one big week I mean, as much as I just told you that one workout, ideally you're trying to do this year over year over year. And that's what led to success. It's just the cumulative years, cumulative miles that leads to, you know, good performances. Okay. Let's fast forward to, to Rio. Talk to me about what it takes and what you're feeling on the starting line of the trials or no, sorry, not the trials, the, um, I guess the, the heats, the heats there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't like, it's a, it's a weird one, right? Like it's like, it's obviously, this is like the biggest moment. This is something I've been thinking about since I was like 17 or even earlier than that, probably 14 years old. You know, again, you're super naive when you're 14, but yeah, you put that goal out there. I want to do this. So here you are, this is your, your dream. It's your, you know, this is the Olympic, you know, your Olympic event. It's supposed to like, you think there's going to be fireworks from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. The reality is it's not. And the reality is you actually don't want it to be. You're trying to make it as normal as possible. So you've already gone to the track. You've already seen it. You've already, you know, walked through all the tunnels that you need to go through. You've, I've been to previous major championships before. So you've kind of been through that, that nervous excitement of sitting beside, you know, the, the top canyons and the Evan Jaggers and all that kind of stuff. So you're trying to normalize it as much as possible. And you're trying to like, you know, internalize and just relax and stay calm and, and cool. And the other thing was like, it was in Rio and it was a morning session at about 1030 in the morning and they'd done a horrible job of getting spectators out. So again, you're, you're picturing the Olympic stadium and you're picturing 80,000 people and just noise and energy it was not that at all. I mean, I walked in there and I could see my mom and dad sitting in first row, like, Hey mom, Hey dad. Like there was probably in the stadium that fits 80,000 people. There might've been 10,000. Like if that, I mean, it might've been less than that. So Mm. in in certain ways, 
it was a let yeah i'd say it was a bit of a letdown um but you're also you're there for you know a specific purpose to race and so back to what i was saying before is that like you're you're normalizing it you're there for the competition you've kind of pushed out all the external stuff you're not trying to think about that you're trying to like take snapshots and remember some things and go like this is this is my olympic experience you're trying to enjoy the little small things along the way as the, as the morning goes but you know once the once you're out on the track i mean yeah you're you're, you're back into race mode and i've raced those guys uh you know probably every single person on that uh, on the starting line in, in some capacity before and so what i found really really hard in addition to some of the other things i just said there was the big goal was to get to the olympic games and then it was trying to redefine what success meant now that you were there. And for me, like, I mean, the easy one is, oh, did you, did you win a medal? Right. But like, that was completely unrealistic for me to win a medal. So it wasn't even on my radar. Uh, even making the finals was one of those big, hairy goals. Like everything would have to fall together. I'd have to get lucky. I'd have to have a perfect race myself. And then maybe I'd make the finals. But even if I made the finals, I'd, pro- I'd be completely outclassed in the finals. Just the reality is they take the top 15 in the world, I was ranked about 30th, give or take. So like, I really had no business in the finals. I could probably sneak my way in if everything came together. So it was like, okay, trying to define what is success at this. And that's really hard because as a performance athlete, you're trying to like, you know, that's, that's how you, that's how you function, right? It's like, you need a goal and you need something that's tangible to hold on to. So I struggled with that. I'd say that. And that was, that was, that probably led to maybe a slightly underperforming, but in the end I did get out there and I ended up finishing I think I was like, it's funny how I don't remember. I think I was ninth in my, in my heat. And so I was just one spot out of being in a potential qualifying spot. Whoa. So right away, as I crossed the line, it was, it was a done deal that I wouldn't make the finals, but I'd, I'd ran, I'd been with the, okay, okay, a little bit of a side here. I actually hadn't seen my race until about a year ago. I couldn't find it on the internet. So I'd never seen it. So I finally got to go and watch it. And I was trying to pair up with what my memory was and what reality was. And so I was with the pack. It was pretty, you know, marginally slow race, especially for the leaders. It was jog, jog kind of thing. I was in the group with about a 800 to a kilometer to go. They made a big push. There was a separation and I went into the second pack, but then with about a a lot to go, we came back together and I just, just got back on the end uh, coming into the the bell lap and coming around the the corner with 300 to go. And then they made their final push again. Then it was strung out uh, as it was. And I think first place, uh, I think it was Evan Jagger in my heat pretty sure again i shouldn't remember these things better but he he was slower than my personal best so right away like one of the, the success measures in sport is your personal best right so it's like one of those things would be really great to get a pb in the olympic heats but i would have had to win my heat to get a pb mm-hmm. so for me it was just staying as close as possible being competitive being engaged and kind of just not making a fool of yourself and i crossed the line at 833 so i was four or five seconds back from the leaders and i felt like i crossed the line i was like I, did, I couldn't do anything more. I'd put out everything I could on that day. I'd executed, I'd done really well. And for me, that, that was, that was success in, in that context. I really appreciate that. I, yeah, it's a really interesting conundrum you faced. And I, I never, ever gave that consideration um, mm-hmm. that you had to on the starting line, you know, figuratively redefine what is success in this moment for you. And I imagine that's the case for a lot of athletes. Yeah. Did you, did you hang them up right after? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I knew coming in, I mean, what I'd put myself through like, you know, the couple of years or a couple quadrennials of kind of, of putting that in, I was 30 years old at the time we were living here in Vancouver, housing prices aren't getting any better. I needed to get a real job and get on with like life and stuff like that. So 
I also knew that like, you know, for me making the Olympic games was, was everything was what I wanted. And like, certainly to go on and be a two-time Olympian would be great, but it was never like mm. once was going to be enough and two wasn't going to make me any happier. It wasn't going to make me any more fulfilled in life. So I, I felt like I'd, yeah, I'd been really pleased. And the only thing I could see was that it was going to get worse. Right. I'd, I'd kind of hit all the major goals that I'd have, like certainly always want to get faster. And you know, that as an athlete, you're never truly going to be satisfied. Like, and I, I've actually had this conversation with our high performance director, Simon Nathan. And I said, like the only person that my comment was, was like the only person that's happy in the world is the Olympic gold medalist. And then I, then I rephrased. I was like, actually, no, the, the, the world record holder, they're probably the happiest person. He's like, they're the most miserable <laughs> because these are people that just can't be happy. Right. They just, they are so driven, you know, in their sport that just, they, they keep going and they keep going. So they're just, they're never, they're, they're happy at nothing. I thought that was a really interesting kind of point. Did you read relentless um, Tim Glover? No, no. Uh, he was, um, what does he call them? I can't remember what he calls them, but he, he was the sort of psychologist, sports psychologist and physical trainer for Jordan, Kobe, mm. Dwayne Wade. And he talks about the killer mentality of, and it's the same thing. And there's actually, there's actually an inherent insecurity in it mm-hmm. because they can't find they're They're still chasing a demon, right? That doesn't yeah. mean don't do it. And it doesn't, you know, does not to take away anything from the incredible accomplishment. But in reality, it's that I can't stop because I don't have an off button because I don't know when I yeah. enough is enough for me. And, yeah. and these people end up a lot of, in a lot of ways, self-destructing. Totally. Right. Yeah, and we, we see it a lot. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's addictive personality, right. And it's mm-hmm. one thing to channel it to something healthy like sport, but it can easily be channeled in other ways as well. And that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to burden you too much longer, but I still have a few more things I want to chat about, uh, you know, specifically the health of our sport that we both love and, and your experience at the Olympics, you know, that was our experience at most of our races, you know, short of, short of a school system where you have just the other athletes in the stands because they have to be there while they're waiting for their races. You're, you're high, our high performance meets. There's like, not even enough people to like ring the inside of the track. Right. And as a result, one of the greatest sports in the world is always struggling. It's always behind. And the, the, the irony is that at least running, you know, we can't speak to all the sports track and field. People love running. They love it. They, they do it like every day they become obsessed with it, but yet we can't get the same level of obsession to watch running and follow the best in the sport as Ironman, for instance, triathletes, like they've done a better job creating post like cultish cultish following, even if you're not in the top 2% of the thing, right? Like, where do we go from here? What's. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great point you raise and we see it. I mean, this weekend is the masters, right? And any person that's picked up a putter or a driver in their life knows what the masters is, knows the top, you know, performers, you know, is likely to tune in at some point, whether it's t- today or on Sunday, but there's a direct connection that if you are, if you're a hack and you're out there on weekends playing golf, you are watching the masters. this yeah. weekend. That is not happening in athletics. If you're going <laughs> for a 5k this weekend, there is not a guarantee and it's more likely guaranteed. You're not going to go and watch the Olympic final You're or you're going to watch any other track meet each year. You may, you may watch the Olympics because they come on every four years and it's what you're doing. But, uh, yeah. And the same thing, you know, I mean, even triathlon, as you point out, that's a good example of something that's a little closer to, to athletics where 
people see themselves in it, right? They, they do the Ironman and they, they make that direct connection to the sport. And so it's something that, that we fail to do for whatever reason. And there's probably you know, a lot of different factors. It's beyond me in terms of why that is. Um, I mean, one thing you and I were talking about before we started here was just the myriad of, of events uh, and the complexity of our sport where we were talking about the, the show that's on Netflix driven. It's all about formula one and how easy that story is to tell. It took them a while to get there and they, you know, hit a home run once they did it. But, you know, you're, you're talking about 20 teams, I think it's 20 teams and two riders, two drivers each. So it's, it's a compressed sport. It's a controlled environment. It's a certain number of teams you need to follow. And they're repeated every single race that you go to. And they, I don't know how many races are in an F1 season, but let's call it 20. So you can easily follow along. Track and field is nothing like that, right? Where you have 23 different disciplines from the javelin through to the race walk to the 10,000 meters to the hundred meters. And then in that you got, um, you know, men's and women's, and then you have, uh, you know, any number of athletes, right. And there's competitions every corner of the planet every weekend. So it's hard to know who's the best and where the best are competing. And so it's an impossible sport to follow. You got to be a total geek and a nerd. And I find it hard myself and I'm dedicated. It's my career. It's my passion. It's my love. I find it hard to follow. So if it's hard for me, it's impossible for the average person to make that mm-hmm. connection. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, across the board. And I, there's there's some steps being taken. I mean, it's, we, we really like in general to, you know, diss on the, you know, international federations and our national federations and all that kind of stuff. And we all feel that we can do better when we're, if we were in that role. Uh, so I'm trying to put my <laughs> actions where my mouth is and try to do a little <laughs> bit of myself. Yeah. Uh, Seb Coast. Seb Coase had some interesting ideas. He's he's the head of IAF, right? Yeah. Um, I, there's a, there's a few things like it's one of those things you look at. Well, you look at Alberto Salazar, right? So everybody knows him, even pre his coaching success, Nike Oregon Project, and and then everyone loves to follow you know, the demise. And I'm not here to weigh in an opinion on him or Rob or the, the, the project, but the bottom line was they had attention. You know, they were one of the few groups that mustered up attention. And then like, I just did some work for, this is a sidestep a little bit, but I was, I was working for uh, Canada Skateboard, not directly, but through an apparel company that was their title sponsor. And this is the team that goes around competing with skateboard. And then obviously at the Tokyo Olympics this year, they got a CBC series. Like a, that's our, like, you know, our Canadian broadcasting. And, you know, I, like I look at it and say, one thing, if Trudeau is going to give $600 million to Canadian media, well, athlete stories should at least be a little portion of that because it's it's not that hard, right? To just to try and find the storylines. And there was there was an athlete I was going to bring up, but it's like, you know, you get you got Usain Bolt, and you know, he did well and he got tons of press. But and then you and you go all the way down to like does it start at high school? Does it start at like building these kids up then as, as their stories? So we connect with them then or only around the Olympic games. Like I just, yeah, I, I don't really know the exact answer. That was, you know, that was a way of saying. <laughs> your, your, your point is right. I mean, storytelling is everything. And so you got to meet people where they're at and we know that, you know, whether it's, you know, Netflix series or digital shorts or, or whatever it is. I mean, there, there's, there's a way that we need to be able to connect with people and tell these people stories. Cause the last thing anyone wants, doesn't matter if it's golf or formula one, 
or track and field or athletics. Nobody wants to watch a stranger out there. You want to know their story, right? You want to know their trials and tribulations, where they came from, the struggles that they faced, and now that why they're you know back on top. Like that, that's what we care about. I mean, that's like every Disney story out there and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's storytelling 101. And our, our sport really sucks at it. And again, I think we're we're up against it because it's it's a lot more you know diverse. But and that's also a benefit too, right? I mean, like there's 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 some strengths to be leveraged there. And so, you know, where the investment comes from, I mean, the corporate sector obviously needs to be drawn in there. I mean, there's definitely things that our national governing bodies and international governing bodies can do. But yeah, it's a uh, we got they got money, to- don't they? Right? Like, does I? I mean, globally they have money. Athletics Canada might not have a ton of money. The um, USADA has no. That's U.S. Track and Field. USADA is yeah. the program. They have yeah. cash, don't they? Yeah, I mean, there, there's money out there, and it's it's not a. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say any of these organizations are are flush with cash, and it's depending on mm. you know where and how you spend it and what's the best things. I mean, there's. There's still lots of areas in sport that, you know, are really struggling. I mean, you still 99% of our coaches are still volunteer coaches. Our officials are all volunteer coaches. I mean, our, our sport is a hundred percent amateur other than the tiny, tiny top of the sport. So trying to figure out that if you're an athletics Canada, if you're world athletics, formerly IAAF, where do you spend that next dollar or a million dollars, right? Is it, is it, do you go put on a Netflix series or do you, you know, ensure that, you know, there's coaches in developing nations. That's a, that's a tough, you know, thing to ask. I mean, you might argue that you do one and you get more money to be able to do the others. That's probably, Mm. you know, a good argument, but these are, these are challenges you can't, or decisions you can't make in isolation. It's, it's interesting too, when you look at Elliot Kipchoge's sub two hour attempt twice, you know, people criticize that. I thought it was the exact right idea for, drawing attention to the sport. Even that's marathon. It's a little bit easier because more like triathlon, more people are connected to it than track, but people like a show. People like a challenge as, as much as like you said, they like a story. And he's been, he's the guy I was going to say, he's bridged the gap. Like he's been featured in multi-page yeah. fashion spread in GQ. Yeah. And I've, I've noticed something recently. I've noticed some very, at least two, and I can't think of their names, very high fashion running brands where uh, I'll try and send them to you after if I can find them, but just like creating some personality. Like if you look at like, why is the NBA winning? Okay. Yes. We like basketball, but the, the catwalk, that being the, the underground tunnel Mm -hmm. where they wear their fashion piece into the race. And now they're, they're creating a connection point because someone who doesn't give a shit about basketball might want to see what Russell Westbrook is wearing. And there's something to be said about, you know, having athletes learn how to brand themselves via other things that then they can bring into their athlete or the athletic sport that, you know, they're trying to promote that gives people another connection point alongside their story. And, and that's, you know, I think that that's a way to, to think about it. I know it sounds absurd to say that fashion is, possibly the entry point like swagger and and whatnot but and then we just end up you know we just end up in this always just seeing what's negative in the sport is what is what gets otherwise like front and center and you know i'll I'll give two examples and i'm curious what you say forget performance enhancing drugs which is always sort of the undercurrent of every any sport it's uh shoes it's where like now everyone's just saying 
well, it's the shoes, it's the better spikes and it's the better shoes that everyone's running faster. And then it's kind of like a scoff at like, well, you know, well, I think there's something there that we are in this sport and I use the Royal, we like, we're our worst enemies. We love to tear ourselves apart, right? We, if we, we do something good, there's gotta be something negative there. Right. So if an athlete goes and runs fast, it's because their shoes, it's because they're on drugs and I'm just as guilty as anybody. So I'm not trying to like pretend like I, I have a different way of looking at it. We all not do of, it. Not of drugs. <laughs> no, but like, we, no, I'm, I'm not, sorry. I'm not guilty of drugs. Yes. To be very clear that I'm guilty of just judging people. If they, if they're successful, it's because they cheated. Right. It's, and instead of, you know, supporting that or, you know, and I, I saw a quote yesterday, I think it was maybe on Twitter or something that somebody said, it's like, we do the same thing with young prodigies. You know, if there's that great, high, successful high school athlete, we just, the first comment is, oh, wait, they're going to burn out because we want to be the person that, that called that first. So look, they're going to, they're going to fail, right? We're instead of like supporting, you know, one another. And so I see that as in general. And I mean, if you go and look at the, the vitriol that's spewed out about, you know, again, world athletics or athletics, Canada, or all these kind of things, like what corporation wants to engage with that, where their own athletes are just tearing it apart from the inside, right? It's like, thank you, but no, thank you. We'll go do something else. Like I, and I, maybe that happens in the NBA and all that stuff as well. I don't know. Maybe they got better PR people that keep that quiet, but you don't, you don't see it as much. I mean, it seems like it's, it's all self self-supporting and, and, and that sort of thing. So I mean, I think, I don't know what the, uh, the chicken or the egg, you know, I don't know how, how you, how you change that and, and get to the point where our athletes are, you know, believing and bought in and supporting, you know, what we're, what we are collectively doing in the sport, uh, or it has to go some other way. I don't, it's not clear to me. Are they funded though? Like, do they, like when you're an athlete, an amateur athlete in the sport, what dollars and cents are you really looking at and what assurances are you really looking at? We chatted just before and you said your wife who's pregnant and congratulations again, you know, previously that was an automatic disqualification, any funding, you know, in the sport. And, and so do, do we here put dollars behind athletes in any way, in any yeah. material way, you know? Uh, yeah. Is it enough? No. Uh, is it, is it material for sure? I mean, right now, like sport Canada provides funding down to the different uh, national sport organizations being athletics, Canada being the track and field one. And they, you know, they provide a, about 70 athletes with about $20,000 a year. So it goes a bit further in, you know, central Canada than it does on the West coast or in Toronto or in the major city centers. But I mean, it's not, it's not nothing. And, you know, I mean, the idea really there is to be a bit of an incubator of talent and be allow the athletes to kind of branch up. And ideally at some point they get picked up by corporate sponsors or they're able to make a living through professional running and prize money and appearance fees and that sort of thing. But I mean, it's a great program. We shouldn't knock it because it, it could easily go away. There's lots of people that fight, you know, that argue that we shouldn't be paying athletes at all. Um, you know, I personally think it's a great, a great program. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's not enough. I mean, obviously we can't kid ourselves that, you know, anyone that's trying to make, make it on 20 K a year isn't, isn't going to go very far. <laughs> that's a little lower than I, I thought you were going to say maybe 50 K. Yeah. Right, the top that's, that's, that's getting by and just, you know, by the hair of your teeth and whatever else, part-time jobs, like you said, maybe you got a, a corporate sponsor that throws you another few K but that's mm-hmm. tough, man really hard right and you look at it like the it's really concentrated by a, a, our top athletes rightfully so because the Andre de Grasse is he's a great example he's a marketable human being like you can 
go down to my local bus stop here as a picture of him doing his GoDaddy thing, right? Like it's, there's a few, but he, I mean, he's a multi, multi-time Olympic medalist, right? So yeah, he's going to, he's going to get some, some sponsors, but if you're just, uh, you know, a 1500 meter runner or, uh, you know, 3000 meter runner, whatever it is, and you're, you're making, just making Olympic games, you're, you're not really, you're not, you know, adding to any company's bottom line by what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's, basically a charity is what they're doing by sponsoring you <laughs> micro influencers baby they work yeah. They work yeah yeah it's interesting we won't solve that today but you know there is a discussion to be to be had as to to bring an understanding of like internal pr and branding into, into the grassroots level so that yeah so what i'm like the thing that i'm doing right now that i'm excited about uh, at work is we're trying to uh work at athletics canada is try to get a domestic series of meaningful competitions on the program because right now there's just it doesn't exist there's a couple of handful of meets scattered around the country but they're not necessarily all broadcasted they don't necessarily all have sponsorships and promoted well and that sort of thing so we're trying to at least have our own domestic series here in canada where you know if you are a track fan there's going to be 10 competitions in 10 weeks time and if you get a subscription to Athletic Canada TV, you can watch them all from the comfort of your home. You can buy tickets. You can go down and watch it. There will be a show. So we got to start with that because if we don't have that, then we got nothing, right? You're not going to, you can't build a following if there's not a single event here in our backyard. So we can start with that. Ideally, you get young kids that are able to come and watch and be able to see Andre DeGrasse or Gabriella Stafford and those, you know, our hometown heroes and be able to see them compete, see themselves in those, those athletes and be inspired as you and I were to continue in the sport a long time. And have that sport reinforce itself. So that's something we're really excited about. And I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy that it doesn't already exist in a meaningful way and it has in the past and it fizzled out for different reasons, but uh, you know, that's something we're hopeful is that we can have a meaningful competition program here in Canada and, and kind of begin things and start from there. Well, let me, let me know how I can help sincerely, yeah. sincerely. I wanted to just, you know, ask just a few more questions. I wanted to know where, if somebody who was, you know, interested in running or, or maybe was part of a club or maybe was not, you know, just a weekend warrior, but like genuinely like the sport, they do, you know, endurance races and stuff like that, but they don't know where their entry point is to really follow it. Where is that outside of let's run.com, which isn't really an entry site as far as where I'm concerned. I like, I go there every day, but you have to kind of know who you're following, I think, to, to find that site helpful at least yeah i think it's I, it's a great point i don't think there is a natural spot i mean canadian running is the is the central magazine that at least does you know obviously some reporting on what our top athletes are doing but they're also obviously talking about just the, the top you know road races generally focusing on kind of road races throughout the country and reporting on some of the you know the big headlines that are coming through the sport that way but you know again it just speaks to the fragmentation of our sport and how there isn't a you know, a, a great spot that you can, you know, connect into and, and get, you know, all of the, all the latest headlines. And, um, you know, to me, it's even a step beyond just the headlines. You want to get to know these people right back to that storytelling thing. And I mean, I, I'd love to say that Athletics Canada is doing all that and we're trying for sure, but I mean, I, I still think there's a long ways to go before we're really hitting home runs in that area. Right. It's tough. tough. <laughs> 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 if somebody was, you know, it was like, Chris, I love running, you know, young athlete, old athlete, give me your best advice for getting, getting better. <laughs> you know, that's a oh, very loaded, loaded, giant question, but 
I think it's a lot more simple than anyone would think though, right? It's just about consistency over time, right? And we got it. You got to weather the storms, right? And we, that's what we, you and I have talked about here is that like, whatever it is, I mean, you're going to have peaks and valleys and you're going to have years potentially of injury, illness, plateaus, performance decrease, whatever. But if you, if you're motivated enough, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like when I said it earlier, like, I think actually, Joel, like if you stuck with it, and I hope this isn't depressing, I think you could have seen success. And I think that's the case with a lot of, if you have that base level of talent, I think if you ride it out long enough, I think you actually will see success. You got to do the right things, right? You got to be with the right coach and have training partners and stay motivated and all those kind of things. But I think if you have a, a, an ounce of talent, I think if that's nurtured the right way, I think you can see success. And I mean, I, the examples are, are around there for us to see. I mean, I, I look at some of our top athletes, take Mohamed, you know, out of the picture. Cause I think he's just, you know, one of those natural. He's a freak, man. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. For those well, who don't, like, for those who don't know, just like, just quickly say how fast that guy just ran this year. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I mean, he just broke the Canadian record for the 10,000 meters running 26, 37, I believe was his time there. It's one of the top times ever. Yeah. And it's just mind boggling. It's one of those things where you're going to kind of de deconstruct what he did there in that performance. I mean, you're looking at 13, 18 for 5k and doing that back to back. You don't even want to know that what that is when you're talking about each lap. <laughs> um, so it's incredible, right? So take him aside. I mean, he, he is, I mean, he even, he's developed a lot over his career for sure, but he's, I would say he's, you know, in that kind of freaking nature in a, in a positive way um, camp, but there's a lot of other athletes that, you know, showed real talent. And I would maybe point to Gabriella, Gabriella DeVay Stafford, who, you know, has come up through the junior ranks, super talented along, along the lines, but was never this like massive global star in the last couple of years. And now she's one of the best athletes in the world. And I think that's just through, through time. She's in a great program. She's training with one of the best coaches and athletes and uh, systems in the world down at the Bowerman group in Portland. And, you know, for her, it's working. She's got, you know, positive role models to train with positive teammates to work out with. And, you know, I think over time you're going to see that. So I, I think high school kids can get really caught up and they want instant success and they want it to happen immediately. And if it doesn't happen, then they're, they, they give up on it. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to continue when you're not making any money, when you're living in a basement suite and you're, you know, you're not seeing yourself at the front of the pack. But I think if it's something that you truly want to pursue and want to, you know, see it through to the end, I mean, sticking with it for that little extra longer. I mean, you're not old when you're 23, you're not old when you're 25. I mean, if you're, especially you're in endurance sport, I mean, you're really not going to see true success until you probably go 30 uh, or beyond that. Really? I, I thought you tapped out. I had once heard it was like 27, 28 was when that speed starts to, I guess you saying it in true endurance, I guess, because yeah. you're not going to, it is a miler. You're not going to peak at 27 probably, or am I wrong? I, well, I think we've, I, uh, you and I grew up learning that. So I would say the same thing when I was growing up, I was like 26 is your peak. But what we're seeing is that people are doing it far beyond that. Right. I mean, you look at Nick Willis, he's just on the downward end of his career now. And he's, he's, 40, if, he, if, if he's either just before 40 or after 40, he's still running sub four minute miles. Right. So, I mean, he was winning Olympic medals back in Beijing in 2008 and continuing through to 2016. So like, there's like, there's certainly, you do not put limits on that. And we look at some of our female stars, especially in, you look at, again, the endurance sports in the marathon. I mean, you got Melinda Elmore, who's got two kids at home and she's over 40 and she was ninth at the Olympic games in the marathon. Right. I mean, she was doing Ironman triathlon like for everyone that doesn't know this, she went to the Olympics in 2004 in Athens in the 1500 meters. 
and then stayed in the sport, had some uh, success, well, continued to have success, but also struggled a little bit after 2012, called it quits and got on with life, started a family, got into Ironman triathlon, was reasonably successful in that. But her marathon in the triathlon was was good enough that her and her husband, who's Graham Hood, one of our fastest 1500 meter runners of all time, was like, maybe we should just try a, a, a marathon on itself. And she goes out and runs, I think it was 235 her first time, which was like, whoa, like that's pretty darn good for a former 1500 meter runner. And then she goes and runs 232. Now she's our Canadian record holder running at a 224, right? Wow. She did that all after I didn't 40. know that. Yeah. Damn. After 40. So, okay. Well, there's a, that's a, that's a compelling argument, Chris. Yes. <laughs> so Joel, you're not too old yet. <laughs> go baby. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am too big though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one, I'm 172 now. There you go. Uh, I'm 172. Well, my, I'm considering it. I'm considering a try. My, my buddy down in Florida has just, Fallen head over heels for Iron Man, and he's trying to drag me in. Are you? I know I pro- keep promising to let you go. My last, my last question or two. Are, are you doing anything like that these days? Are you doing tries? Are you doing long, long like endurance runs? Or no, I, uh, I I stay healthy and active. I try to get out every day. My whole thing is like sweat once a day um, for mind and body. It's by far the best thing when you're especially. I work remotely from home, so I need to get outside. I need to go see greenery and get mm-hmm. into the trails and stuff like that. But I haven't had a real competitive urge since I retired. And I think I maybe have, you know, burned a lot of that in my, my <laughs> lifetime. And, you know, like I don't need to do it again. And I did do a couple of things early when I retired, I jumped into a couple of trail races, did a 25 K trail race and an 18 K trail race. And I, I was okay with it, but I really enjoy the trails. And I found when I was going, you know, lights out, I was, going too fast to be able to pay attention and enjoy the scenery and the, and the surroundings. So I, I was comfortable to slow it back down. And I, I, every now and then something captures my attention. And I jump into something, but uh, no focused on other things and just trying to be healthy and, you know, just enjoy, enjoy, you know, I don't know, a healthy body and getting outside. <laughs> when you jump back into something, are, can you turn it off? Can you no. the athlete never dies (laughs) and i will say and like this is total humble brag but it's like anytime i've stepped on a start line the announcer cannot not say that we have olympian chris winter in the field and that just like it's done okay like if i could just be you know like a a nobody it would be okay but they they put that on it's like all right i gotta show up today the reality hasn't done i haven't done the training to show up either so i just like turn myself inside out to be my former self. And it's uh, every year it gets a bit worse, <laughs> <laughs> but it feels the pain. Oh, the pain is probably like, it just feels the same, but you're going slower, right? Like that. Oh, I did a, a really fun little race. There's a, a local shout out to the Vancouver running company and Rob Smith there. They, they do a great job. And he put on this really fun little haunted mile and it was he called it alley cat racing, which is like unsanctioned, uncertified. And so the course was just like made up that night. And there was like a group of like 20 or 30 guys and another group of 20, or 30 girls that got together and did this. And we had our, our little heats uh, and races. And I, I just showed up again. I hadn't done any training, but I just, it sounded fun. It was like a 10 o'clock at night under the lights and stuff and showed up there and, and gun goes off. And I'm like, like all I've, I figured, I, I figured I was like, I'm fit enough that I was like, I can just sit on these guys. And like, I got enough like natural talent. This is again, just my like, 
ego sitting out there. I got enough natural talent that I'll just kick these guys down in the last hundred meters or whatever. That did not happen. At 800 meters, <laughs> I was, I was in the, the tank. I was redlining. I was like seeing God already. And so I just keep hanging on. Cause like my like ego was just like, you can't lose. You've got to be there. And so I'm just like, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. And we get down to like the last 150. And I'm in second place. And this guy's right in front of me. And I'm just like, I'm trying to find fast, but I'm not fast. I'm spinning legs out wide. Oh, I'm like, I look like an egg beater out there. And the guy got me by about two steps kind of thing. And I mean, I had a blast, but like I had the taste of like blood in my mouth for like half an hour afterwards. I hadn't been in that <laughs> zone for a long time. Oh man, man, that is a good, good story. I respect it <laughs> because also I can relate. I can, when you're saying, I can feel it. I oh yeah. yeah. Feel it, man. Chris, my friend, it's always, it's always too long and, and that's my fault. I live in the boon sticks and what, <laughs> but, but you are, I'm so, I'm so grateful for your story that you decided to stay with it. And I'm inspired by it. And that is why we need to fund athletes because you are inspirations. You are, you know, you embody what is possible um, to strive for. And that is the human spirit. And we need that and we need to fund that. And so hopefully we can find ways for that. And I, I don't know, but if, if there's any place that you wish for people to find you or find a cause or find something you're working on, where can they go do that? Other well, than I mean, Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's funny. I, I've, I've actually, I mean, we go down this rabbit hole slightly here, but I mean, like even social media and stuff, it was an interesting, like step back from sport where you felt like your Instagram and your social media was like linked with your success in sport. And you needed to have one to be able to be successful in the other. And, I, uh, I find it really interesting just naturally kind of stepping away from it because I have nothing else to sell right now. I mean, I'm happy with what I'm doing in my life. I'm happy with my, my family and what I've achieved and all that kind of stuff. And I don't feel like there's like a whole lot to quote unquote prove. And so I, I don't share a lot anymore on social and that's not, it wasn't a big aha moment at one day. It was just kind of a slow kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, slide away from it. So uh, I'm still there. I'm still around and I post things from time to time, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really, at this point in my life, it's just trying to turn around and give back. Right. And I mean, yes, I'm doing it for a career, so I'm getting paid to do it. So it's not this huge altruistic thing, but I mean, I, I'm certainly trying to build, I, I see myself as like a builder and, you know, I've got this 25 years in sport to, to kind of pack along with me and, and experience from all different levels of the sport. And I'm just hoping to do good for the next generation of athletes so that they, uh, you know, have an amazing experience and maybe don't necessarily have the trip ups that I did in my, my career with some of the, you know, we talk about health issues and things like that. And so I'm trying to make the sport just better that way. And I'll do it, whatever. I mean, I wear multiple hats. I obviously have my job with Athletics Canada, but I, I have my fingers in a lot of different things. And, you know, I'm involved in putting on my own race. I put on a cross country race with my, well, not just me by myself. I have a great crew that we put that on each year in the fall. And, Part of a number of other events and I'm coaching a little bit with the, the Vancouver Thunderbirds. And so I just trying to find ways to give back. And so I don't, you know, to your point, I don't need anybody to, you know, throw me money anyway and anything like that. I just, uh, I mean, I think everyone can look within and there's everyone can kind of give back in their own way to make our, our world a little better spot. And so whatever that is, it might be in curling or track and field or, you know, your book club or whatever, but uh, yeah. Cool, man. Cool, man. Well, why don't you send me the, uh, the links to the cross country race and we'll, we'll throw those in the show notes at the, at the bottom. And yeah, I've got a couple of fun things we're working on. So I, I can flip that 
the other thing that I would say that's like really fun. And especially if you're in like BC, lower mainland area, it's something that I helped build when I was with uh, my previous employer at BC athletics before moving on to athletics, Canada was the Pacific distance carnival. And to me, it's kind of like this, I don't know, coming to life of like my vision of what like the best track meet is. And that's like, it's got, it's the 10,000 meter championship race. So it, you see guys like Luke Brochet and uh, Rachel Cliffs and Melinda Elmore's will race there and you get to see the best athletes. But then we also give an opportunity for our local fun runners, people that, you know, take it seriously that are, you know, training, they're running Boston marathons, they're running, you know, the sun runs and all those different races. So they got an opportunity to compete there, but there's a beer garden, there's music, there's fireworks. Um, it's a really good time. So we, we really try to make track and field fun. And again, we talked a bit about that tonight, how it's not really fun, but this is like a two hour thing where I guarantee if you show up and you care at all about athletics and track and field, you'll go there and you'll have a great time. So I'll flip that to you. You should check that out. And, uh, that's coming up in just a month. Oh, in May, May 14th. Yeah. At Swangard stadium. So we have a beer garden where we've got partners with, uh, Stanley park brewing and they do a great job and they, they put on a show there and, yeah, we have Japanese drummers to set the tune. They, they bang away on the drums for the 10,000 meter runners to give them the kind of motivation and set the, set the environment there. Great. Well, if I'm Pretty in town, cool. I will, uh, I'll come. Yeah, it's a really good time. So I'll flip that all to you. And uh, Joel, it's been great. Great catching up. I appreciate it. Love all the work that you do. I love following along your stories and uh, you know, all the amazing work that you've done in your life. And let's keep pushing. Cool, brother. Okay. Be well. Okay. Thanks, Joel. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you, and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.